Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. On this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about the imminent threat of nuclear war. We talk about the row between the Conservatives and Corbyn over Venezuela. And we ask, which is the better 90s sitcom, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or Frasier? Hello and welcome to perhaps the last ever New Statesman podcast. We are happily in our New Statesman bunker. Sadly, it's not as bunkery as I would like. There's a window, there's clearly a draft. But we've got India, who I think would be very useful in a post-apocalypse situation, because she knows a lot about farming. Let's talk about Donald Trump's kind of escalation of hostilities. I think the big question that probably I wanted answered really was, actually, has this changed anything? Or is this just a kind of crazy guy saying crazy things and it's all in the game? So I went back and read some of the North Korean statements and the North Korean statements have got this incredible way that they're written. They're sort of halfway between kind of fridge poetry and weird bureaucratic language. So they'll kind of say, you know, if there is an installation that, you know, compromises or jeopardizes our whatever, then we will rain down a lake of fire upon people. They... They're they're full strength crazy is what I'm saying. And maybe they just think, oh, good, Donald Trump has now entered the kind of crazy metaphor game. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. And obviously I say that with exactly the level of knowledge as... Actually, I'm suddenly reminded of the fact that there are serious foreign policy experts who listen to this podcast, for which I apologise. Yeah, I think we should probably front up the the fact that our level of knowledge is www.google.com. Where is Guam? Yeah, like, with someone who had been doing a lot of panicked Googling, I read an article that seemed very persuasive by Gideon Rackman in the FT. The difficulty is, is obviously the original uh, war between the US and Korea was based on a misunderstanding of the signals from one or another. North Korea thought that a speech by Dean Acheson, which basically he talked about, like, the perimeter of US interest, it didn't include Korea. They were like, oh, brilliant, that means then you won't mind if we walk in then. The US was like, actually, no, that is within our perimeter of interest. Get out. But yeah, so the rhetoric from North Korea, that is normal. That kind of rhetoric usually comes out of the North Korean government. I'm suddenly realising I have written the word Pongyang hundreds of times. I have never said it. Was that right? I don't know. Yeah. And guess what? I might never need to learn. I think the thing that's fa- interesting about it... But the difference is, it, is Trump's rhetoric, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and actually the, the fact that, that he has now become one of the kind of... You know, I have a kind of mental checklist of 
crazy saying world leader things you know people who you just don't they they like to kind of keep you on the hop they don't talk sort of soberly or seriously about foreign policy which in which club i would kind of put erdogan of turkey obviously kim jong-un vladimir putin sometimes will just sort of say kind of you know banterous things you know south american dictators classically have had a good line in this kind of stuff and now instead of professorial obama who's was always into kind of calming down the rhetoric you have donald trump talking about fire and fury and you know kind of vengeance the like of which the world has never seen and significantly there hasn't yet been someone else kind of coming out to go no what he actually meant was I mean, as I read the situation, North Korea wants nuclear weapons capabilities as a kind of insurance policy against regime change. Yes, against like the Gaddafi scenario. Yeah, and also it's got, frankly, probably ultimately more worryingly, she says a week before turning into a shadow on a wall, it's got a huge amount of conventional weaponry because Seoul, the South Korean capital, is only a couple of dozen miles from the North Korean border. So it has an enormous offensive capability against its neighbours already a proven one that would kill thousands of of people. So the UN is is debating, uh, I think, has more sanctions um, on it and and in order to try and restrict the amount of funds that it has to develop this program because the key thing seems to be about whether or not the intercontinental ballistic missile has currently got the capability to go up into space and then survive re-entry and come back down again. And that's the bit that they haven't got quite licked yet. Right, Okay. so at the moment they've basically got a rocket, but not a missile. So I have some questions which are going to appear to be very shallow, but what does this mean? For like, Brexit? <laughs> what does this mean for Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party? I'm actually amazed no one's asked him to, to foreshadow the second half of this segment. No one's asked him to condemn it yet. But he'd, fi- he'd be fine with condemning that, because he. I mean, this literally is one way you can condemn both sides, right? Clearly, Kim Jong-un should not be saying crazy things about lakes of fire, and Donald Trump should also not be saying crazy things about fire and vengeance. No, the kind of what does what does it mean is is what is the worst escalation of a nuclear standoff between the United States and North Korea? Like the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, the reason why that was a potential flashpoint that could have led to World War Three is both the Soviet Union and the United States had an active interest in the region and in keeping the balance of forces. Does that situation apply in the same way? Could this end up with nuclear exchange among all of the nuclear powers? So one thing that I can't believe this cheered me up, but the picture of Kim Jong-un posing with their nuclear warhead, which is affectionately known as the disco ball, it only has the same capability as the weapon that was dropped on um, Hiroshima. Uh, although you know now there are you have the potential for much more powerful weapons than that. So that's one small cheery thing. What really worries me about this whole situation is actually the kind of really incredibly creaking infrastructure of the command and control stuff. So Eric Schlosser, the guy who wrote Fast Food Nation, wrote a terrifying New Yorker article a couple of years ago called Command and Control that was based around his book that said, you know, they are reliant on sort of pre-internet systems, really. And and in some ways, you know, and I mean literally kind of like five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which in some ways is a good thing because what you certainly don't want is someone else to attack your so you don't have uh, like nuclear... XP for nukes. So here's a really worrying thing that I'm sure I must have told you before. Submarines run on run win- on XP, yeah. Run on Windows for submarines, which is based off a type of Windows that Microsoft no longer patches and supports because it's obsolete. So there is that. The trouble is, I just think no one seems to know because essentially it's what we're coming back to what we're talking about before, is you have two incredibly unstable, bluffing, shit talking leaders of two countries, right? It's not it's not happening in a kind of rational frame. So on a rational basis, of course, I mean, nobody wants outright nuclear war, but 
equally well, nobody here is kind of acting like a, a grown-up, really. Should we move on to Venezuela, having dealt with that piece of foreign policy so insightfully and indefinitely non-terrifyingly? Yeah, right. So Venezuela. So we've done two things in the magazine this week. One, we've done a, a leader column on Venezuela and shock horror as Venezuela and, and actually how to, to feel about that from the perspective of Britain and what we should feel about further sanctions, not just on the regime itself, but that would you know have much more wide impact. And you also talked about the kind of political dimension to it, which is the sort of Tory reflexive. You know, why won't Jeremy Corbyn condemn Maduro, who he's previously kind of stand for? Someone pointed out to me the other day that the slight weirdness of the situation where it's quite easy if you are reading a British newspaper or watching British television to know what Jeremy Corbyn's position or non-position on what's going on in Venezuela it is less hard to find the answers to questions like, what is Maduro's first name? <laughs> what is the issue of contention? What is going on in Venezuela? And I thought one point that summed up the slight weirdness of the row from a domestic perspective was there is a, was a statement from Boris Johnson, in inverted commas, as yeah, CCHQ mouthpiece, before there was a statement from the Foreign Office as a, and here is what our Britain's, Britain's actual response <laughs> yeah. to this is I mean, so it's an odd one. As I say in the column, the idea of it from the conservative perspective is that they have to find some way of going a Corbyn government would be worse than what we have now, particularly because the expectation is that there will be a recession or a, at the very least a downturn. And so the advantage, they think, of the fact that Venezuela, you know, that most people, let's face it, including myself, could not point to it on a map most people do not follow foreign policy that closely, is that you can introduce the subject to the public solely as a cautionary tale about the end point of a Corbyn government. So in that sense, it is, it's fulfilling the same role as Soviet Russia once did, right, during the 70s. You sort of say, well, you can't elect a left-wing government because the ultimate destination is a Stalinist purge and collective farming. Yeah, basically that is kind of the theory of the line. Obviously, the slight difficulty... I, I think there are a couple of reasons why I don't think it will work, and I think it speaks to the quite interesting summer that the Conservative Party is having, is that, one, as mentioned, most people do not care about foreign policy. And the slightly dispiriting thing, in a way, about one of the reasons why the Conservatives' IRA line was never going to work is most people do kind of regard Northern Ireland as foreign. But most people don't care about foreign policy, so you're having to introduce all of these terms the other side can then go, well, actually, here's how, how we see it. And basically, people just go like, meh. But here's the thing. So I do think that actually Corbyn has got a responsibility to make to get put a more... Well, um, here's my way of saying it. I think I would have more respect for Corbyn as a politician if he engaged more deeply with the issue. I mean, I don't think necessarily that's the right thing to do for political reasons, but I mean, ethically, that's the right thing to do. Because his statement did say... I condemn violence on both sides, which is one of those, it's got an unfortunate echo of anti-Semitism and other forms of racism to it. The argument really dates back to the 2002 attempted coup against Hugo Chavez, the previous leader of Venezuela, which was backed by the US, essentially. So it becomes seen as this great anti-imperialist story. And the way that you see it in, you know, the kind of 2011 sort of writings of people like Owen Jones is as the little country that could. You know, it's the, it is it is a country that was taking its oil wealth and using that to fulfil a kind of socialist programme. And that's an interesting, it's a much different way of, of structuring an economy that maybe we could learn from. 
So I think the problem is when you're in that game of saying that Venezuela is a country we could learn from, when things go bad, then you can't, you know, people are going to then throw that back in your face. And my other contention is that I feel that this has become a kind of contest of whataboutaries. Anyone on the left who's asked to talk about Venezuela immediately hits back with what about Saudi Arabia and vice versa, you know, and it just ends up with flip-flopping around this idea of just, you know, who are you going to condemn? And actually, real talk, there has been some huge corruption in Venezuela. The latest news is that the Constitutional Assembly has declared itself the kind of supreme arbiter of everything, essentially overriding Parliament. So it's definitely heading in a really authoritarian direction, which we should condemn. And Saudi Arabia is an, you know, an impossibly misogynistic theocracy that is unfortunately our strategic ally in a region where we need to contain Iran. Who is that quote by that says, you know, foreign policy makes hypocrites of us all? I just really wish that everyone would just chill. Sorry, I realize I'm doing that annoying thing of just speaking my column into the microphone, but I'm going to keep doing it because I might be a shadow on the wall next week. The thing about foreign policy is particularly in the Labour Party, but actually in the Conservative and Liberal Democrat parties as well, most MPs are not that motivated by it, other than Europe, which people kind of regard as not properly foreign. That's also, that's partly a culture war now, isn't it? That's uh, that's where Europe is, uh, the argument really is. But even the people who are sort of really into Europe and terms of actually how it works, you know, like Bill Cash, who sort of unlike your more modern Eurosceptics, does actually have a detailed set of opinions and understanding of what the European Court of Justice actually does. Yeah. But also, they that's a place that people have been. People yeah, have been, like, they a significant they percentage kind of, think of the British sort of public has been to France or Spain foreign, on holiday. Foreign policy. Yeah. Whereas Jeremy has always been, foreign policy is his thing. On domestic issues, he tends to defer to John McDonnell or Diane Abbott. He is much more into foreign policy. And so I think, whereas with a lot of people on that bit of the left, is it fair to go as far as to say their attachment to Venezuela as an idea was solely rhetorical? It's not quite fair, but they definitely would be a lot more willing emotionally to go, yeah, just throw this under the bus, as it were. Whereas he has a a, a very deep interest. He's followed Latin American politics for a long time. So it's harder for him to swerve out of the way of it as an issue. However... I think the interesting thing about the summer so far is the Conservatives have had, from a technical perspective, a great time, right? They have successfully got their issues to be talked about, not just uh, in the right-wing press, and then inevitably the broadcasters follow most of the, the, the print press, which is mostly to the right, but they've actually managed to drive the to get the left to respond a bit on their terms, which they basically completely failed to do on the election. Tuition fee debt, a ridiculous attack line, but they successfully made some weather and some forward motion with it. On Venezuela, again, they've sort of dominated the headlines. However, I think it's actually a bit of a dangerous success for them because they are landing blows, but those blows aren't actually doing any damage. And I think that he's... You're definitely starting to see in conservative circles the illusion of Nick Timothy in his remarkably dull interview with The Telegraph basically went, oh, yeah, we underestimated him, but we'll get him next time. There is a kind of feeling that if if Labour is mildly uncomfortable, you've done your job. And and, and the fact that, you know, Labour are being pinned down and kind of being forced to fight on terrain they don't want to fight at is not the same as you are winning the battle. Yeah, I think I th- the thing I find really a bit alarming, and I've I've written about this in the con this week, is that I d- I am still very worried about the ability of the Labour front bench to make weather. You know, there are a couple of people in there who are really talented at 
And I think it's a process not many people understand about how you would say use House of Commons research, for example, and and, and pull out a really great figure that you can then brief to to people, and then you can kind of create a bit of a storm. Around. You know, so you get hold of the, how much child poverty has risen, for example. Well, like that, that great thing they hit that hit they had start of the week about it'll take two hundred years to make every station disabled access friendly at the current rate of investment. Yeah, and and I, and that stuff is the kind of bread and butter of opposition politics. Actually, if you want to read more about that, there's quite a, a lot about it in Harriet Harman's memoir about the work that she did on NHS waiting times during the early nineties. And I'm not sure how many people they have in the shadow cabinet. Some of them, John Ashworth, I think, being an obvious example, really good at that kind of bread and butter stuff. But the area that I, an area that I'm really interested in, in prisons, I just don't feel they are connecting at all. And you had a report by the chief inspector of prisons that said not a single place in Britain, not a single institution in Britain, is a safe place to hold a young person in detention. That is the state that we're in. Our prisons are incredibly overcrowded. There have been four disturbances and riots in the last 18 months. That was nowhere mentioned in the election campaign. The idea of a kind of re-rolling these kind of academy-style prisons seems to be kind of ebbing slowly away and giving governors more control. So, you know, David Liddington, I think, might as well have taken a vow of silence. Richard Bergen, the Labour shadow, I think might be in a witness protection programme. That stuff, I think, is going to... that You know, they've solved the kind of, is Jeremy Corbyn electable issue by the level of vote they got. What they haven't necessarily solved is the, is this an opposition that can make its own weather question. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is with prisons, I'm not going to defend the shadow justice's uh, ability to make hay on it because it obviously is not. But oh, it's hard to get anyone to care. Yeah, from an opposition perspective, it's an unpopular subject that gets no votes. Yeah, in an odd way, the pain point for the government is the bit where you can go, prison guards aren't being paid enough. Well, you can. I mean, you literally can say that. Like the Prison Governors Association is really. Yeah, I think the. But yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. They're they're actually making people feel sorry for prisoners, even if they're young offenders, is is a really incredibly tough job for any opposition. But yeah, I don't know. I just think it's one of those things. And and actually, do you know what? This is bleeding over into a a slight. (laughs) Disgust is probably too strong a word, but the piety of some of the people on the left that. There will be an incident in a prison, I'm quite sure, that will be as, as horrible as, as Grenfell in its own way because it is a system that is creaking so much and then everyone will pile into it and I just feel like at that point I'm going to be thinking, well, where were you guys you know, swanning about saying how you know, very right on you were when there was actually a chance to stop this happening? Yeah, I mean, prisons are this sort of interesting canary in the coal mine because they were unprotected right from the beginning and they are one of the few places where there hasn't been, what, a single U-turn on a major cart in the prison estate until this year? No, and and also there's been a terrible botched privatisation of the probation service in which you ended up with all the major contractors saying we can't actually make these contracts work. And they split it so that the high risk offenders would stay in the public sector and the low risk offenders, you know, as ever, the nice, what you quote unquote, easy contracts would be given to to private providers. But then you end up with a, a market essentially that's, you know, trying to lure people away from the harder jobs into the private sector and you're just undermining your own public service. But it, and also it's an issue that absolutely, you know, it's an issue. This is the other thing that I get my rage on about it. It's an issue that in, almost exclusively affects working class men. 
And that's something that, you know, as somebody who's a bit feminist on the internet, I get thrown in my face a lot about, you know, what about the stuff about caring about men? Actually, I really think in this instance, we don't care about a big group of people who are, you know, care leavers are far more likely to end up in prison than, than other groups. You know, these are often people with, 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 who, you know, or have mental health issues or have addiction issues. Oh, it should exactly what Labour should be doing. These are the people that, you know, Labour should be helping. It's just a cry of rage at this point, if I'm honest. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. And welcome to a new section we like to call... Head to Head? Yeah, maybe. The idea is basically that Stephen and I will have a small contest where we both propose our own choices in a fight and then we'll do battle between them and you're very welcome to tell us your opinions. It We're not killing off You Ask Us, it's just all of your questions this week were, am I going to die in a nuclear firestorm? Would you rather die in the initial blast or fend for yourself in the nuclear I'm team initial blast. Yeah, I'm team no pizza, no point living. So it's 90 sitcom week on the site this week. Uh, Tom Gatti, our critics editor, has written a great piece about Brass Eye. We've got other pieces about Only Fools and Horses. It turns out one of our welcome scholars is named after David with Jason, which is quite an exciting revelation. But Stephen and I are going to go head to head about our picks for 90 sitcoms and tell you why they are so great. Do you want to go first? Yes. So I picked Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And there are a couple of reasons why Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is great. One, because... And you know this is true. When someone says the word Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you just start to hear the, you know, like... The license plate said fresh and there were dice in the mirror. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's, you know... It definitely wins the theme song because that tossed salads and scrambled eggs is abhorrent and I hate it. But also, I think the brilliant thing and the kind of properly sort of pioneering thing about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is although there are a couple of episodes, you know, in the kind of six-season run, there are maybe five episodes which wouldn't work if they weren't all black actors. Actually, the brilliant thing about it is it's the first majority-minority sitcom and actually... In Britain, we had to wait till 2016 to have one where actually it's just a sitcom that happens to star a lot of black people. Ultimately, it's, it's in some ways a fairly classic British sitcom plot because it's about class, right? You have like a working class kid who moves in with his posh relatives and hilarity ensues. And they've got a snooty English butler who, instead of being played by like Stephen Fry, is played by a black English actor. And that's kind of, I think, one of the reasons why it's endured because the Jeffersons, which I rewatched for research purposes, although some of the jokes are depressingly still quite familiar to the African American experience, they f- mostly feel quite dated. Whereas Fresh Prince is just fundamentally a very well done, well acted, but run of the mill sitcom that happens to have a majority minority cast. And I think that's why it's so path breaking in its own way and also why it's endured. And also it's just Will Smith is always brilliant in every role, no matter how like no matter how bad the film he is in, Will Smith always brings his A game. Yeah. I think by the end of the Men in Black series he was slightly begun to phone it in. But I agree with you. He's been in a lot of terrible films in which he has nonetheless 
committed 100%. Weirdly, so my choice is Frasier that I wanted to write about. I would have thought I would have ended up writing about Friends because that was the big behemoth. What's weird is to look right back now and say that actually in terms of commercial success, Frasier was enormously commercially and critically successful. It feels now like the kind of forgotten snooty elder brother of this mass market appeal that was Friends, but it won an absolute ton of Emmys. I mean, the, the audiences began to fall off in the later seasons and it did have 11 series, which is, let's be honest, too many for anything. But again, it is a comedy about class and some of the episodes that I find most emotionally affecting are the ones about the relationship between Marty, so Fraser and Niles' father, who is a retired cop who uh, has everything that they don't have. You know, he was happily married for years to their mother. You know, he had a, a stable kind of blue collar job and actually then he gets shot in the hip the first episode starts with Niles telling Frasier who's just moved back to Seattle that he slipped in the in the bath and he you know he's lying on the floor of his apartment actually the guy looks absolutely fine for the rest of the series I mean I know you can't really have someone kind of decrepitly maybe it's just Daphne's amazing physical therapy but he looks very chipper so the the comedy uh, that comes between them is about children who have left their parents' milieu. And actually, in both Niles and Fraser are supposed to have been kind of child geniuses, but also very unmasculine boys, you know, and they were, the, they were very into opera and chess when they were growing up. And actually, the difficulty that Martin had as their father, having kids who were so unlike him, who were so uninterested in the stuff, you know, he always, you hear all these references all the time about how he was always trying to play American football with them. And they just obviously, they didn't want to, they wanted to go and like practice bark but also the fact that they moved into a realm that he can't access their lives are about going to you know the opera and stuff like that there's one phenomenal episode which is called the doctor is out which guest stars patrick stewart in which the premise is that fraser and niles end up following a new boyfriend of Roz's who they think is gay into what they where they think he's gone into a gay bar and then it gets reported someone calls into fraser's radio show and says well i saw you there's things you don't tell people i saw you last night in bad billies Everyone then thinks he's gay. Patrick Stewart turns up and he's an opera director that they both really love. And there's a line from Niles which says, you know, he's so brilliant that he staged a Philip Glass opera last year and no one walked out. And it's that kind of joke that you think, you know, how many people are there in America who would appreciate a gag about how unbearable Philip Glass operas are? But there are them. And uh, Fraser basically tries to convince himself all the time that Patrick Stewart is not trying to chat him up. They're just lovely friends. And even though he buys him a watch and invites him to his premiere. And there's this incredible moment at the end of it when Fraser really so wants, he says, I've always wanted to be half of a power couple. And it's about that, that kind of encapsulates Fraser, which is that he always has this intense desire for status and recognition. And it, he never quite feels that his life has been a success. But you see the contrasting model of success, which is his father, who had this much kind of quieter life, but has done things that his his boys never could. Yeah, but is there a bit in Fraser when they talk about how rich they are and Will Smith goes, so we're rich, then how come we don't have no ceiling? And the camera pans up to the studio lights, because if so, if not, I think my pick is better. Well, there isn't, I don't... I... There is a moment in Frasier when someone turns up uh, and they've been an actor and they say, imagine how awful it must be to have played the same character for 20 years. And Kelsey Grammer kind of looks super hangdog. Oh yeah, of course, because he was in Cheers before. And he played the same character in Wings as well. Wings? Yeah, it's another sitcom that no one else ever watched. That's the other thing I really like about Frasier. Sorry, I will stop banging on about Frasier's foot. It is in a very old-fashioned sitcom and then it's multi-camera filmed in front of a live audience. 
rather than single camera, you know, like The Office, when it fo- one camera follows people around, you cut it together. So it is incredibly theatrical. And there are episodes of it that are staged like a stage play. And you, you listen to the producers talk about it. For example, the ski lodge, which is a kind of proper old school bedroom farce with everyone going into each other's bedrooms. Between setups, they played the flight of the bumblebee to the audience to kind of keep them in the mood that this was a, a farce. And the the tone of that really reminds me of something like Noises Are, or The Lady Killers, you know, a kind of classic stage farce. And that's something that it did better than any other multi-camera sitcom, I think, really, that I can think of. I think the interesting thing is I don't think anyone actually picked Friends in the end, which might be because it's so mammoth that writing a piece on it feels like a kind of weird Herculean task. But I think in an odd way, the strange thing about a lot of Friends, particularly by the end where they effectively all get refined down to a one-gag character, is that actually, although it's very funny and it's obviously hugely culturally influential because it went on so long and so many things which came after it riff off it in some ways, it doesn't actually have any weight. It doesn't have... It doesn't have a theme, yeah. right? Its only theme is that it there is now this new period between leaving home and settling down that you fill with a, an ersatz family that is your friends right but it doesn't have the theme of social mobility is actually really painful which is both the kind of theme really of both the fresh prince and fraser and what you lose when you cross a class boundary it doesn't have that kind of i mean someone did a great thread on twitter about their and a subject very close to your heart their hatred of ross as a character the worst and they said there is an alternative rereading of friends where it's the story of rachel a kind of spoilt princess who becomes a, an independent, self-actualizing woman. Only that is, of course, ruined by the fact that she doesn't get on the plane to Paris because, once again, Ross has put his jealous little hooks into her. Yeah, he's a bad guy. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. We are recorded and produced by India Book and Caroline Crampton. Thank you very much to the people who created a meme page for me to offset the Stephen Bush memes for New Statesman Loving Teens page. I am very grateful and I enjoyed those, so keep them coming. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.